0: Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm Doug Berkey, Executive Director of Mitchell Institute. Here on Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. If you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. So to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thanks so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you hear, Please do us a favor and follow our show and give us a like and leave a comment so we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. A few episodes back, we met with Major General Paul Rogers, Adjutant General for the Michigan National Guard, and then Brigadier General Tom Donilon, Assistant Adjutant General for Idaho and the head of the Air Guard there. And they helped us better understand the details of the fighter shortfall that's facing the country. And they really made it clear for us that you know the actual pressures that are on the flight lines right now. And today, we're going to continue this conversation by talking to Lieutenant General Mike Lowe. He's the director of the International Guard and is based here in the Pentagon and is the key leader interfacing with all the states, the Air Force leadership and top DOD leadership plus Congress. So he's an incredibly important voice in this conversation. He's a career fighter pilot. In fact, he was Heather Penny's commander for one of her deployments during Operation Iraqi Freedom. And the depth of his perspective is hugely important given what's on the line right now. Sir, thanks for being here. Hey Doug, thank you for having me. We've also got Lieutenant General Dave Deptula and Heather Lucky Penny with us too. Hey Doug, how's it going?
1: Great to be here, thank you so much.
0: So General Lowe, we had a great conversation with Major General Rogers and Brigadier General Donnellan back in April. Given their lanes of responsibility, focused a lot on what they're seeing at the unit levels. Now you've got a different perspective given your perch here in DC at the national level. How would you describe the demand we're seeing for fighters these days when it comes to COCOM requests?
2: Demand for fighters is actually high. When you look around at the combatant commands today, everybody is looking for fighter aircraft and sourcing of fighters to deliver air power, air superiority, all the way down to a close air support. And what they're really looking for is a multi-role fighter. So when you look at that, the capacity okay, and the capability of the United States Air Force needs to both increase and modernize. And by capacity, we've had a couple of huge thought leaders on this. Commander of Air Combat Command has come out and said 60 fighter squadrons. And then back in 2018, we looked at force sizing for the United States Air Force, and it said 62 fighter squadrons. So both of those are there. For the Air National Guard today, we have 25 fighter squadrons. And it's a 25 for 25s campaign. Four of those fighter squadrons are training squadrons. We currently train in the F-15C, the only ones that actually provide F-15C. And then I currently have three fighter squadrons in F-16s. And so right now we got a recap plan for the F-15 C squadron going to F-35s. And then the F-16 squadrons are gonna stay in that because they're one of the primary four aircraft of the United States Air Force. And that's the training piece. And we need to keep the training capacity up and high because every fighter pilot we produce is another fighter pilot we can use for combat aviation. And then, so then I have 21 unit equipped fighter squadrons out there, okay? And those 21 fighter squadrons both provide capacity for global force management as well as for sourcing of operational plans.
0: Now, I really appreciate that. And I'm glad you highlighted the training piece because obviously we got that fighter pilot shortfall and anything we can do to keep that capacity there is essential. So, General Deptula, you've also lived this reality when it comes to high COCOM demand for fighters, and you've seen it from command positions. What's your take on it? Why does everybody keep wanting more fighters?
3: The bottom line up front, Doug, uh, is that no joint force operation can be conducted without some element of the Department of the Air Force. And that starts with air superiority, just as General Lowe mentioned. Air superiority is the paramount condition required for the entire joint force to be able to successfully operate. Forces on the ground, ships at sea, space and cyber facilities, logistics lines, and most forms of air power simply won't make it very long without protection from the sky. So if we want to actualize what amounts to about 99% of the rest of the defense enterprise, we'd better invest in fighters. And while some people say, look, the Navy and the Marine Corps have fighters as well, they do. And that's great, but air force fighters are unique as every air force component fighter exists to support the combatant commander conducting joint force operations. That's not the case with the Army, Navy, or Marine Corps Aviation. Those service aviation components have overriding organic assignments first before a combatant commander can access them. As a result, only Navy and Marine fighters in excess to their service roles participate in the joint fight and therefore are only available to joint force operations in much smaller numbers than Air Force fighters. In as, as most of our audience hopefully knows, fighters also provide a wide variety of other missions. Like Mike said, strike, close air support, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, escorting, combat, search, and recovery packages, base defense, homeland defense, and so on. If we were talking baseball, fighters would be the ultimate utility players. They cover so many key roles given their multi-role strength. So the net effect is a huge demand signal and it's mandatory. These are not nice to have capabilities. If there's anything the Russia-Ukraine conflict illustrates is how without air superiority, conflict devolves into trench warfare. And that's a recipe for disaster.
0: I appreciate that, sir. General Lowe, where's the disconnect? If fighters are so important, then why are we falling short right now when The threat seemed to be ramping fast and capacity is strained significantly.
2: Yeah, I'm going to go into a lot of detail here. And if I lose somebody on this, I do apologize because delivering air power, it is about a capacity and a capability problem. So let me just talk about the capacity and the reserve components. And that's both in the guard and the reserve and what we do. And then we can go on to the active component after that if we'd like to. But in the guard right now, I have 21 fighter squadrons. The reserves have three unit equipped fighter squadrons. That is 24 combat coded fighter squadrons to deliver to the joint force. Now you think that would be ample, okay? But realize that I can't, in a normal force generation cycle, I can't access all of those fighter squadrons at the same time. Plus, I'm also conducting 24-7, 365 homeland defense missions with a number of those fighter squadrons. So between the global demands from the homeland, no longer sanctuary, and then the overseas demands, What you wind up with a one to five deploy mobilization to dwell in the fighter squadron portfolio is at any given time, I can give four fighter squadrons between the Guard and Reserve to the joint force. That's global force management. Then as you look at sourcing operational plans and you look at the pacing threats that we have today between the People's Republic of China and Russia, those are going to be global conflicts where the homeland is threatened more than it is today from just uh, rogue terrorist attacks. It could be threatened from cruise missiles, kamikaze missiles, the stuff that we're seeing going on in Ukraine. So if we're going to deter or try to deter, or if it goes kinetic with one of those pacing challenges, I have a simultaneity of operational plans that'll come together. We have to immediately, conduct homeland defense, and that's robusting our current steady state homeland defense posture. Then we have to be able to project air power overseas into a theater of operation, whether that's in support of say NATO against a Russia threat, or whether that's in in support of Indo-PACOM. And so right there I have in the Afrogen model that we're all living under, that's active garden reserve, about half of those forces will be available. So that gives me 12 fighter squadrons to source both homeland defense and the overseas fight. I have one that's getting in the prepare mode, okay? So they will come on, but they won't be that first wave. And then I have one that was just in the reset mode, okay, that is coming back. So at any given time, that puts a huge strain on the force. But that's not the full story. The capability story is the big one. And the legacy fighters that we have in the Air National Guard – were designed and built in the 70s, 80s time frame. At that time frame in our Air Force's history, we were looking at high-end exquisite, more single-role operations than multi-role. And the single role I'm talking about is F-15Cs for air superiority and A-10s for close air support. Right now, they are of limited value, let's say in CENTCOM when I go overseas. they're, they're The A-10 can't perform NATO air policing missions, if you would. They can't perform a defensive counter air role. Likewise, the F-15C can't drop bombs, and therefore it can't perform that multi role that, say, an F-15E or an F-16 can. So now I've further limited my pool of available resources to both global force management and to source operational plans. So we need, absolutely need, a modernization strategy and roadmap for United States Air Force. We need the Air National Guard and F-35, F-15EX, okay, and then the concurrent and proportional fielding of the next generation air dominance fighter to the Air National Guard. So those are things that are required. Those things take resources. And so this limited pool of available for both global force management and for the plans has brought us to the situation where we are today. So that's why hopefully between the budgets inside of the Department of Defense and over on the hill, we can actually get after
0: this modernization. That's absolutely huge. I appreciate that. So, Lucky, you flew in the Air Guard for many years, and you've got some unique experience when it comes to the Homeland Defense mission. So, I want to pull the thread on something General Lowe is referring to. You know, we know the Air Guard is important for meeting all COCOM demands, but why is it particularly important for NORTHCOM and Homeland Defense?
1: The Air National Guard has long been essential to the defense of the homeland and to ensuring that COCOMs have the air power they need to execute the range of operations from partner engagement, deterrence, to full-up combat operations. And as General Lowe said, there is no sanctuary anymore. The homeland is no longer fully safe. Adversaries are investing considerable sums in the ability to strike the U.S. homeland directly, whether or not it's cruise missiles, ballistic missile strikes. Remember how excited everyone got over the Chinese balloon? Let's Quaint compared to the other systems and threats that they are developing. And let's remember, Homeland Defense is a no fail mission. So here's the challenge today is that when you take a look at the active duty, the Air National Guard, and the Air Force Reserve, our total force size is too small to fill the range of demands from Homeland Defense to the rest of the O plans. And we have to expect, again, as General Lowe said, that. When one goes off, the rest will too. There will be a simultaneity of oak plans, which will exceed the combat capacity of the total force. Now, we simply do not have enough, again, of combat aircraft capacity to do what the nation expects. And the Air National Guard is crucial. It's an essential for NORTHCOM. So we have to get real about resourcing that demand. And that means recapitalizing capability and capacity.
0: I appreciate that. And it, it certainly reminds me of the statements that Secretary Heather Wilson at the time were making about the Air Force is too small for what the nation is asking of it. General Lowe, time is a huge factor when it comes to sustaining a military force, especially when one is highly trained is a fighter enterprise. And it takes years to train a fighter pilot or a maintainer, really, for that matter. I think that's a key factor why the Air Guard is so important to the fighter enterprise. Can you speak to that? Sure. It is a huge strength of the Guard. Longevity of
2: service in one key mission. When you look at the 25 communities around the country that actually support fighter operations, they are part of that community. Okay? When you look at the Air National Guard writ large in our 90 wings and 180 communities around from Guam to Maine and Alaska to Puerto Rico, you, they, they buy into this Air Force mission and they really do own it. And that's that community grassroots support of our United States Air Force. So that's key. When you look at the Air National Guard today, here's what we provide. We provide 30% of the combat power for the United States Air Force. And we're 27% of the fighter fleet. So the Air Force cannot fight and win our nation's wars without the Air National Guard. So that's probably the biggest statement. With that, we maintain the same readiness standards as the active component but with a force that is at least seven to 10 years longer in the tooth, more experience on that particular platform, F-16, F-22, F-35, than the active duty counterparts. Okay. So that longevity of service, both in the ops and the maintenance realm, allow us to maintain a high standard of readiness for the force. And it also allows us to do it at a lower cost. Additionally, talking Homeland Defense, even though it's 27% of the fighter force, we provide 94% of the homeland defense mission. So that's our ability to defend here at home while simultaneously deploying overseas to provide combatant commander things. So all that put together is also the other part of the value of the National Guard is we do it at a lower cost because of our part-time construct. And there have been over a dozen, okay, studies on the cost of the Guard and Reserve models and everything else. And all of them have come up with about 34% of the cost of an active duty squatter. That is the average that all of these have come up with. So that value of both the community support, the value to our nation of what we do from the homeland and projecting power overseas, the value of the units doing employ in place missions out of the 90 wings, 32 of them do title 10 employ in place missions where your Air National Guard is always on mission, means that the Air National Guard maintains a high state of readiness that can get after the, the nation's need and deliver air power anytime and anywhere for the United States Air Force. So
0: we are absolutely key to the joint force and the ability to do that. I appreciate that. General Deptula, this notion of experience and how long it takes to season people and maintain that edge, how did you see that play out there in your career?
3: Doug, I tell you what, my experience reflects a lot of what General Lowe just described. Matter of fact, we were chatting just before we came in here for this podcast about my experiences back when I was the director of operations for Pacific Air Forces, and there was a big international exercise in the active duty Air Force elements had to drop out, or a good portion of them did. I happened to be flying with the unit there in Hawaii at the time. I went down to the squadron and said, hey, can you guys fill in for this operation? Make a long story short, the short answer was yes. And they were able to secure the airlift, the appropriate airlift, and the appropriate tanker support as well. So the fact of the matter is that stewarding human capital is a big part of the fighter equation. It's not just about the airplanes, and while headlines often focus on the aircraft, it's crucial to remember that it takes pilots, maintainers, and a broad array of other highly trained personnel to operate the fighter enterprise. The fighters only deliver results if properly manned and maintained, and that includes having sufficient fighter expertise to fill critical staff responsibilities. Right now, the fighter pilot shortage is so severe that the air staff, joint staff, and critical planning positions on combatant command staffs simply don't have fighter pilots to fill them. Not to mention that there are virtually no instructors with fighter experience at many of our professional military education schools simply because the fighter pilots are not available. For example, we've had air campaign planning and programming accomplished by people in non-combat specialties. Now, the Air Force currently faces a shortfall of around 1,900 pilots. That's a gap that's persisted for many years. Worse shortfalls exist within aircraft maintenance, especially as older airplanes stay in the inventory past planned projections. This means existing personnel are not able to transition a new aircraft, like the F-35, which then adversely impacts ready- readiness rates. And as General Lowe stated where you retain your expertise is in the Guard and Reserve. So that's absolutely an important and critical element that we need to remember when folks get too focused on efficiency and forget about effectiveness. Um, And it's also worth noting that these shortfalls exist during peacetime, which suggests the Air Force would face severe challenges handling wartime demand surges, as well as force attrition. It's long past time for the Air Force, the Department of Defense, and Congress to tackle these shortfalls with concrete actions. This includes assessing talent retention efforts, training capacity, force sizing, as well as manpower sizing. Now, that applies to both the Guard and the active duty, but these are critical issues. I think the biggest takeaway here is that the Air National Guard is absolutely a key element in being able to retain the expertise that too often the active duty Air Force is
0: losing. I appreciate that, sir. So Heather, one area I think where we really want to applaud the Air Force is their focus on pursuing new solutions. So collaborative combat aircraft or CCAs for short, they're an example of that. We talk about that a lot at Mitchell. So this is a next generation uncrewed aircraft technology, going to likely augment fighters, And like I said, we're huge fans, but why is it important to build manned fighter capacity today in balance with this forward-leaning technology?
1: Doug, as you said, CCAs or collaborative combat aircraft, that is going to be essential for the way that we fight in the future. And General Deptula mentioned one of the reasons why, and that is simply the fighter pilot shortfall. We do not have sufficient fighter pilot capacity or combat pilot capacity to be able to meet the demands of the COCOMs at a pure conflict, right? So in many ways, uh, these CCA will be the little wingmen for manned fighters. Now, we have to understand that a lot of these operational concepts, how they're going to play together, they really haven't been developed yet. And a big reason why is because the CCAs themselves have not been developed yet. There are a lot of good ideas, there are some test platforms, there are some artificial intelligence companies that are leaning forward in how they model and simulate how these CCAs would behave and how their brains or agents would work. But these are all right now still research and development projects. So we need a baseline of capacity for today and the rest of the decade, because remember, even if we're able to maintain the manned fighter capacity today or even grow it, the demand when we go to bear conflict will be even higher. So it's important that even though we, again, applaud the Air Force for what they're doing with CA, we need to realize, A, that these unmanned uh collaborative combat aircraft will not replace humans in the battle space, and that's critical because it's that experience, that expertise that General Lowe and General Deptula talked about that is so crucial to a combat edge, but what they will do is augment the capacity. Now, again, even if we were able to accelerate how quickly we develop and then begin to actually field these aircraft, and again, none of them are actually flying around testing and fielded, but even when we can accelerate that, there's going to be a learning curve. There's going to be a learning curve when we finally put those CA in real airspace with real pilots, not super test pilots, but with real pilots, young lieutenants and so forth, there's still going to be a learning curve. We can kind of look back at what it was like when we fielded air-to-air missiles and they didn't perform as intended. You know, not only was there a trust gap and pilots didn't fully understand how to operate those missiles, but it's actually the missiles had really low probability of kill rates. The missiles weren't really good. They missed more than they hit. And there was a difference between what the technologists and, had designed and what they predicted, how the missiles behaved in test under those ideal conditions, and then how they actually behaved in real combat employment. So that learning that learning curve requires a pad of functional mission capability. So we can buy more maneuvering room in terms of time as we begin to mature those capabilities. But I believe that we need to grow our manned fighter capacity, as well as augment that capacity with CCA. CCA will do lots of really great things, but they're not going to be able to do it without the human.
0: That's a really important key point there. So, General Lowe, we explored this bit with General Rogers and General Donilon, but what's a solution path for helping add the fighter capacity we're talking about here?
2: As I look back over history, you got to look at where the Air Force has come for different platforms like B-2, F-22, and even more recently, the F-15EX. And where we're going in that one, but divestment before investment leaves gaps. We can't commit future Congresses to those investments. When you look at it right now, we're on a great path to get 72 fighters a year, but that should be the minimum. We already talked about the capability gap we have. Right now, there are three large-scale production fighters in the United States: they're F-35, F-15EX, and we're still producing F-16s for the overseas FMS market, foreign military sales market. So those. That, that key capacity of the United States to rapidly mobilize and increase that comes with more resources. We continue to advocate that inside of the building and down all the way through OSD and CAPE and the White House. And then, obviously, uh, you mentioned it, General Rogers and Brigadier General Dolan. they're out on the Hill, as they should be in the National Guard, asking what, hey, how do we modernize our old A-10s? How do we modernize our old F-15Cs? How do we modernize our old pre-block F-16s into modern fighters like NGAD, F-35, and F-15EX? So those are all going through there, and it takes resources, which means let's look at the national defense strategy. Let's do an analysis on a national defense strategy. Let's look at each of the components and the services and go, okay, where should we be investing? Are we truly serious that Homeland Defense is number one? Are we truly serious that, hey, our Number one pacing challenge is the People's Republic of China. When you look at those two, they should be absorbing the majority of, then, the investment dollars to the future. And that's where the Secretary of the Air Force, Secretary Kendall, has been so key on the OIs, the operational imperatives, the research and development and testing dollars to get after the OIs, to get after NGAD, to get after B-21 family of systems, to get after a space order battle. Those investments into how we are going to deter the next conflict from ever happening because an adversary will see zero weakness in our United States Air Force, which will then deliver zero weakness in our joint force. In that presentation, we just need to get the resources in the right position to actually operationalize the national defense strategy. That's incredibly
0: well said. General Laptula, Lucky, thoughts on this?
3: Yeah, Doug. First, great remarks, General Lowe. I'd like to refer everyone listening to the paper that Doug and uh, Gus Costella wrote and we just released yesterday entitled Accelerating Fifth Generation Air Power, Bringing Capability and Capacity to the Merge. Now, the reason I say that is before getting to the sections that describe F-35A, TR-3 and Block 4, Doug and Gus go into detail on the square corner that the Air Force is now in with respect to fighter force structure. And frankly, the solution is more resources. We need more resources to stop the death spiral that the Air Force is in. The reason the Air Force is now the oldest, smallest, and least ready that it's ever been in its history is because the Department of Defense has prioritized the Army and the Navy ahead of the Air Force for 31 years in a row. Now, how many in the audience know that the Army's received an average of 66 billion? billion dollars a year more than the Air Force for the 20 years post 9-11. Okay, they were given that money for Iraq and Afghanistan, but guess what? We're no longer in Iraq or Afghanistan, and we need to pull the Air Force out of the nosedive that it's in, and that requires a shift in resources from the other services to the Air Force. There you go. I've said it. We need capacity now. The money And what that does is it requires money to sustain our older fighters until sufficient numbers of the new ones can be purchased to replace them. And the sooner we get newer aircraft on board, the sooner we can replace the older force. And frankly, that boils down to increasing the F-35 procurement rate. The bottom line is we should not take the enormous risk of divesting old iron before new iron is available because that's simply a losing proposition.
1: General Deptula, I think that's a mic drop. If you don't have an Air Force, you cannot have a joint force. And divest to invest is a losing proposition, not only because You'll never get those jets back, but you lose all the experience and expertise of the pilots, the maintainers, and everyone else involved in those combat operations when those jets go away. So we simply cannot, we cannot divest invest. And what that means is you got to buy now and you got to buy a lot now. So shift those resources and make sure that we have an Air Force, a total force that can not only meet the demands of the COCOMs, Homeland Defense, and the Indo-PACOM Theater, but ensure that we're able to deter, shape, and win.
0: Heather, let's continue the conversation here. Part of the solution here is the industrial base as well. How does that stand? Is there the capacity to surge that kind of production?
1: (laughs) This is a really great point. No, we do not have the industrial base capacity necessary to surge production. The capacity is so thin and part of the reason why is because the Department of Defense has asked defense contractors to be as efficient as possible, as lean as possible. And so they did as directed. And that means that they don't have the spare capacity to surge production. And we are seeing this in Ukraine, where we're trying to surge production of missiles and bombs. I mean, Raytheon just brought back a bunch of their retirees in their 70s so they can teach the next generation how to build surface-to-air missiles. So this is a problem that the United States has because we have not thought about what demand signals a pure conflict would require of us. As General Law mentioned, we've got three fighter lines today, F-35, F-15EX, and F-16. And they don't have additional capacity. There isn't the tooling, there isn't the manufacturing space or so the floors, the warehouses, and there's not the workforce, and there's not the supply chain necessary to be able to surge that production. So what does that mean? Not only are we seeing a global demand spike because everyone now who's been deferring, recapitalizing their air forces is going, oh, holy cow, look at Russia, look at Ukraine, look at China, we better get modern today. And so they're putting in their production orders, right? I think someone said Putin is the best salesman for F-35 ever. (laughs) But so not only are we seeing the demand signal spike there, which is sucking up some of that capacity, but we, what it really means for us in the United States is that we don't have the industrial production capacity to surge when we need it. And aircraft are not just in-time production assets. So what that means is if you don't have that surge capacity, you have to ensure that you have the force size and you're holding on to that force size prior to combat operations. And we're talking about aircraft. But again, building out of this deficit isn't just about aircraft, it's about training and experiencing the combat pilot and maintainers. So we can't just simply instantaneously manifest that expertise just because dd 250 or accepted a jet, right? So those are two things that we need to be very conscientious about, is that you cannot just instantaneously build aircraft. And by the way, the industrial base, to build up the capacity that we need there is going to take years. So the only choice we have now is to buy as many as we can now so that they are in the inventory when the time comes.
0: So John, Daptoulos brings up a good point. We often hear from DOD leaders that we don't have to worry about our own capacity because we've got allies to augment our forces. And you recently testified before the UK Parliament about fighter aircraft modernization. What were your main takeaways on the notion of allies in in this bolt-on capacity boost idea?
3: Well, first, Doug, as I think everyone realizes, at least in the United States military, that allies are absolutely crucial. There's no question about that. We're never going to go to a fight without our friends and partners and allies. However, for too long, the Department of Defense has used that as a cover to defend cuts that frankly are too aggressive as a means of hitting budget targets. People saying that need to realize that allies are going to have their own organic requirements first and foremost. Look at Japan, for example. A great fifth-generation partner nation. However, they're going to be focusing a good number of their F-35s on the homeland defense of Japan. They'll have to. And that may not leave as many spare aircraft or available aircraft to meet combined combatant command requirements especially for offensive power projection at range. And then added to all of this, nearly all our Allied partners took way too much risk downsizing their Air Forces after the Cold War. If we think the United States Air Force is in bad shape, which it is, we need to look at some other countries to really understand the scale of the problem. The Royal Air Force is a tiny percentage of what existed in 1990s. It went from 36 combat squadrons in the Desert Storm era to nine combat squadrons today. So the Royal Air Force is only 25% the size it was in 1991. Folks, are threats today greater or smaller than they were 30 years ago? There comes a point where their numbers, even if provided to a combatant command in their entirety don't amount to significant volume to offset the amount of capacity risk that the United States has taken. I know that's complex discussion, but the bottom line is we have to build back our
0: own Air Force structure. So, John Lowe, talking about this notion of capacity and experience, the Air Guard has unique ties to the war in Ukraine, given that California is a state partner for the Air Force. And as I understand it, one of General Harrigan's first calls was to the California Air Guard leadership for insights and perspectives. What has this conflict taught you when you put it in the context of a fighter shortfall?
2: Yeah, You know, air power is abundantly clear. The war that they're fighting in Ukraine right now, and I think we're on about day 492, okay? It was February 24th last year, is really a war of land attrition. This is trench warfare. This mirrors what happened back in World War I? Nobody has air superiority over the battlefield, okay? For our United States Joint Force, the last time an American ground soldier or Marine was fired upon by an enemy aircraft was 15 April 1953. That's the last time. We have enjoyed air superiority, okay? But we don't do it without investment in a modernized, well-equipped, capable air force. And so when you look at the lessons out of Ukraine, that long state partnership program has allowed the Ukrainian Air Force to maintain some periodic air superiority over the force, both from a defensive counter air perspective, shooting down Kamikaze cruise missiles and doing that defense to actually projecting air power, Okay, and also through the development and some help of the Western allies, of putting new capabilities on their older MIG aircrafts like HARMS, JDAMs, those types of things. That has been enabled, a lot of it, through our training efforts in the State Partnership Program. The State Partnership Program is unique to the National Guard. We have 88 partners with over 100 countries around the world. And so from an Air National Guard perspective, we go out there to train and modernize new air forces provide new air forces the capability to contribute to the total air power required for our allies and partners to come join us in any sort of coalition operation. And they have. From my previous time as the Adjutant General for the state of Colorado, I had two partnerships, one in Jordan one in Slovenia. Slovenia will, to this day, say that the reason that we were able to get up to NATO standards was the Colorado National Guard. They've deployed with us down to Afghanistan. Jordan is our second state partner program. They have been in every major conflict, to include what's going on today over in Syria and others, with us. They even deployed forces down to Libya when NATO took on the Libya operation. Those partnerships allow our allies and partners to grow to a, both a capacity and capability for full interoperability with our coalition forces that we have out there. And so those partnerships are very powerful. Going back to what Ukraine has demonstrated, it's the importance of air superiority in any conflict. We need to both defend the ground troops as well as have command and control of the air. And so that's why we continue to say an investment in the United States Air Force is an investment in the Joint Force, which actually
0: realizes the national defense strategy. Now, that is really well said. I appreciate it. And General Deptool and Lucky, we've talked upon this in various parts of the conversation. You you consider the importance of various priority in the rest of the fighter mission. Where does that really leave us with the strategy of divest to invest? The Air Force is still trying to retire far more aircraft than it seeks to buy over the coming years. Doug, unfortunately, the short
3: answer is that without additional resources being provided by the Department of Defense and the Congress to the Air Force, divest to invest is the only answer that the Air Force has if it's to find the money to invest in future capabilities. And that's why I said earlier that the Air Force is in a square corner. Now I got there as a combined result, a series of a lot of things, and I'm sorry to, to simplify this and perhaps too much, but this isn't something that happened overnight. This has happened over 30 years. As a combined result of the underfunding of the Air Force. Remember what I said earlier, and folks just don't realize this. But if you take pass-through out, the Army and the Navy have received more funding than the Air Force for 31 years in a row. The other part of this is misplaced priorities on the part of the Department of Defense and joint leadership. Uh, And quite frankly, all of these factors need to be reversed.
1: Divest to invest is a losing strategy. The Air Force is cannibalizing its combat capacity right now. And if you don't have an Air Force, you cannot have a joint force. As General Lowe said, we're seeing that in Ukraine, where without air power, without air superiority, they're having to fight land combat of attricity. They're having to fight a land warfare of atrocity and attrition. And that's expensive, both in blood and treasure. So divesting is not the answer. And also when you divest, when you shrink your force, guess what, the COCOM demand is not getting any smaller. So we're just spinning the remaining forces harder. So in a resource-constrained environment, and oh, by the way, the Air Force does need to have more resources so it can get the capability and the capacity that it needs. But in a resource-constrained environment, the Air National Guard makes sense. Take a look at the numbers that General Lowe shared with us. Why would you not put forces in the Air National Guard? Because when they're in garrison, you get those cost savings, but you still have those that capability and you still have that capacity.
0: Okay, so I get the problem. You guys really hit that hard, but how do we know when solutions are adequate here? And, and how is this going to work with the new budget caps?
3: The current Air Force leadership should be commended for getting to a procurement rate of 72 fighters a year in FY24. But it needs to grow more than that, given the scale of the problem to this point where we're talking at least 100 Air Force fighters per year. And I believe it will take 109 per year to ultimately get to a fighter average age of 20 years, which some of us would tell you is too long anyway, but it's a heck of a lot better than 40 years, which is where some of our fighters are. The real measure of success, Doug, is going to be when we stop having catastrophes like we saw at Kadena this past fall, with firefighters absolutely having to retire, no direct backfills, and a smaller force stretched even thinner, having to fly rotations to maintain presence in that area of the world. Regarding the budget caps, this is where the Department of Defense has to step up and take a cost-per-effect approach, looking at trades across all the services, not just inside each of them. If there's money to spend on long-range, land-based, surface-to-surface hypersonic missiles that cost $50 to $60 million a shot, then there's maneuver space to assess where better value can be realized across the defense enterprise. There, I've said it, but this is the kind of valuation and analysis that has to be conducted. Department of Defense needs to reverse the question when they look at this. What's the cost of failing to have capable fighters in sufficient numbers? The answer is the joint enterprise is simply not survivable or effective
0: without them. So, General Lowe, we've emphasized that the air guard here is a seamless part of the solution, but there's an important differentiator, and that's cost. And you've spoken to this in various parts of your answers. Fundamentally, the units don't cost as much when they're at home station. And let's be honest, this fighter problem is all about money. We've hit that a lot here. So walk us through that math specifically and why it's so important. Okay. I'm actually going to start with value because really
2: that's what the Air Air National Guard provides for the United States Air Force, provides for the United States of America. And that's the true value of the Air National Guard. So when you look at the Air National Guard day, and I'll just run over some numbers with you because I I talk about them a lot, especially when I'm over on the Hill. But the Air National Guard is the largest major command in the United States Air Force. It has 108,400 airmen that are trained and equipped to fight and win our nation's wars. We're organized in 90 wings with over 180 installations and in 159 communities, and that's around the United States of America. We conduct 94% of the Homeland Defense mission today, the nation's number one priority as laid out in the National Defense Strategy. We provide the Air Force 30% of the Air Force combat power across all core functions. That's from nuclear bomber operations all the way down to cyber space operations, intel, space, It's about 38% of the Air Force wings, 21% of the Air Force's airmen, and it's less than 10% of the Air Force's budget. So that's a value proposition, one step of it. We talked about what we give for that 10% of the Air Force's budget. But the real value is in the experience of our operators and our maintainers. Our longevity is unmatched. We historically retain, after the initial pilot training commitment, 89%. Of our pilot force. So we put them through UPT, we bring them back to a unit, we season them, we deploy them, we do everything we can, and we're retaining 89% who have lots of choices right now, especially when you look at pilots with the draw of industry, airlines, or anything else. Okay. Our UPT graduates right now average almost 19 years of service post-UPT production. So that means they've already spent over 20 years with us. And they're still retirement eligible, and they still want to serve the United States Air Force and the Air National Guard. Those historic retention rates for the high skills that we provide are absolutely essential, and that's the value of the Air National Guard. Okay? So when I look at the Air National Guard, we are an indispensable combat force for our United States Air Force and for our Joint Force. And we maintain that ready force that's ready tonight. We're the first military responders for our nation, whether called upon in the state or called upon by, obviously, the NORTHCOM commander for Homeland Defense. We're the first nation's responders. Think about that as we go through this. And so it's not just
0: about cost, thank you very much, but it's also about the value that the Air National Guard provides for the nation. That's a great summary. So what about when folks say it's too hard to get to Air National Guard aircraft and crews when they need them for an unprogrammed, unplanned demand?
2: That's always been what I like to say. It's a false narrative, and I'm going to say it that way. It is a false narrative because the first thing is we've always said, hey, we're always ready, always there. But I start with this. We're always on mission. So right now, out of the 90 wings, 32 are on a Title 10 mission today. So we must be pretty easy to access if I got 32 of them doing mission today. Okay? And then when you look at unplanned and unseasoned things, there are many things that we can do to get to an actual, and they've laid out tons of authorities, to get to the Air Guard when we need to be there. And we actually uh, just came back from Corona where we had a long discussion on how we get access to both the Garden Reserve. Some of our units are first movers when you look at the capacity that we have. And so we have to be able to get past the narrative that we're not accessible and get to actually, here's how to access the Garden Reserve. And so the education programs that Air Education and Training Command is going through, they're actually revamping their syllabus. We've taken it on at the highest levels to make sure that all the MAJCOMs, the numbered Air Force commanders and that, actually know how to do this. And then you look at the authorities that Congress has laid out, and one of the most recent ones is 12304, and I say it's recent, it's over a decade old. So this was back in 2012. This is for just about anything we do. The other services use this routinely. The nice thing about being an adjunct general, I saw what the Army has done. And so when you look at K-4 or Sinai or even Spartan Shield, Defense of the Arabian Gulf, whole units of the Army Guard are going over there all the time. So the authority, 12304, very easy to get to access. We could do almost anything in 12304, and it is an involuntary mobilization up to 60,000. So when you look at, again, the Air Force generation model, and the ready forces, you'll get 108,000. Half of those are available for ready or commit at any one time. You can access essentially all the readiness of the Guard that you need right through the authorities that we already have. So we just have to educate folks on that, yes, the Guard is accessible. <laughs> the Guard is ready. The Guard is on mission today, okay? We'll be on mission tomorrow. And then actually figure out how we're going to do this
0: as we move on into the future. No, I appreciate that, that as a great summary. Folks, we're at time, but General Lowe, General Leptula, Lucky, really appreciate your voices and your perspectives here today. This is such an important topic. Like I said, we applaud the Air Force for getting the fighter by up to 72, but we obviously got to keep pushing to get above that. And the Air Guard is going to be a huge part of filling the gap. So, again, thanks for your thoughts today.
2: Hey, folks, uh, thanks for listening today. Thanks for the Mitchell Institute for taking on this, especially when we talk about air power. For the Air National Guard, it's about recapitalization, and it's about engaging our communities in this national defense narrative and making sure of that the Air National Guard provides value for America. Your Air National Guard is always on mission, and we're always ready and always there for America. Thank you very much for all your advocacy.
3: Thank you very much, General Lowe, for being here today, and not just for being here today, but for doing all that you do as a spectacular leader for the National Guard, we wish you all the best.
1: General Lowe, it's been a pleasure to serve with you and for you, and thank you for being here today.
0: And with that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. And If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join the conversation by following Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at MitchellAerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.